what my favorite holiday was, guess how I would have answered you? Got a few votes for Easter, a few votes for Christmas. No, no one for Groundhog Day? What would you think? What would you think? Some obscure Korean holiday? <laughs> if you had asked me, Dane, what is your favorite holiday? I would, without skipping a beat, said Christmas. It was my favorite holiday. And one of my favorite Christmas presents of all time was a present my parents gave me, or maybe it said Santa on the tag, I don't remember. But they gave it to me when I was two or three years old, and it was a big brown Little Tykes football toy box, kind of looked like this one here. Got that? Did our computer freeze up back there? That'll be up there in a minute. There we go. So it was one of those Little little Tykes toy boxes. So it was about yay tall, about yay tall, about this wide. And uh, I love this toy box. It held all of my toys in there. It had a nice little lid on top that made the top of the football. And it didn't take me very long to figure out when I took the lid off and pulled out most of the toys, there was enough room inside that thing for me. And so little tykes must have known 40 years ago when they were making these things, they must have known that there would be little boys like me that would hide inside these footballs and they better put in a breathing hole. So on the back of this football... This, uh, you'll see this next picture is an updated one. It has two holes on top. Mine just had one, but uh, I guess they found out that in the 90s or in the last 20 years or so that sometimes two kids hide in them, so they each need a hole. But mine just had one hole, and so I'd put the lid on top, and I'd squat down like this, and I'd peek through the hole at the rest of the house. I could see everything and everyone, but they couldn't see me. And so when I first started doing this, my mom, I would hear her calling through the house, Dane, Dane, where are you, Dane? And she would start to look a little panicked. And I'm just sitting in the football going (laughs) to myself. And I would wait until about 10 seconds before I could tell in the tone of her voice that I was about ready to get a whooping. And about 10 seconds before her voice got to an absolute shrill and I knew I was dead meat, I would just slowly lift up the lid on my head and peek at my mom. And I was so darn cute, she just couldn't punish me. I'm not sure what happened in the last 40 years, but I used to be so darn cute. And so that was a great present that I don't think I'll ever forget. And over the years, I've come across others that received one of the the best Christmas presents of all time. For some, it was a bicycle they received when they were six years old. Uh, For little girls, maybe it was a dollhouse when they were five. Uh, Others, as we got older into our teenage years, maybe it was a new car or maybe it was something. Maybe, ladies, you were one of the few in the country that had the Lexus December to Remember brand new vehicle. I look at those commercials every year and shake my head. How many guys out there really buy their wife a $60,000 car and put the big red bow on top? Evidently, there's some. But anyway, I found all of these wonderful presents over the year, and I'm sure that you found the same. These wonderful presents don't compare to the greatest Christmas present of all time. God sent us His own Son, a baby born in a stable placed in a manger, a baby born to save the world. And so as we dive into Luke chapter 2 today, as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be in very familiar territory. Uh, We're going to be at this passage where I'm guessing uh, most of you have heard this read 50 to 100 times. It's a passage that as a church we read together every single Christmas season, at least the first 20 verses of it. 
And quite likely it's a passage that you read with your own family each year as one of your family traditions on, on Christmas Eve or on Christmas morning around the tree. It's a very familiar passage. We'll look at that in the first 20 verses. And then we'll continue on into verse 21 and following. A passage that's less familiar to us, but equally as important. The details in the first 20 verses that we are familiar with, you might think that you've pretty much discovered all there is to discover in that familiar passage. But I think you'll find today that there are some nooks and crannies in this passage and there's some wonderful little hidden truths that God wants to reveal to us and teach us today along with some applications to apply to our lives. So this is a great passage. I'm sure it's one of your favorites in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And we'll start in verse 1 in just a moment. But first, would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this day. And we ask, O God, that as we dive into this familiar territory in your word, Lord, that you would open our minds and hearts. I pray that the familiarity would not keep us from opening our ears to what you want to teach us, opening our minds and hearts to what you want us to learn and receive. Lord Jesus, teach us through your word today. And all God's people said, Amen. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, say Amen if you're there. Make sure you have your Bibles in hand. You can grab a blue one from the rack in front of you if you didn't bring your own Bible today. Uh, If you don't have a New Testament of your own, we'd love to send you home with one after the service. Also grab those message notes from the bulletin uh, so that you can get the most out of this message today. So chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel. And they were praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem and and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just 
as they had been told. One of the reasons that we can be certain that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah was because of prophecy. The Old Testament is filled with dozens upon dozens upon dozens of specific prophecies about the Messiah, the coming Christ. And Jesus Christ fulfills them all, doesn't he? Peter Stoner in his book Science Speaks has calculated the odds of of one man in history fulfilling all of these many dozens of prophecies from the Old Testament. And I want you to imagine for a moment if I I took a silver dollar and, and dropped it on the carpet in this room. But imagine that I had 10 billion silver dollars. And I filled this entire room and the entire lobby and the entire fellowship hall and all the hallways and all the closets and all the classrooms, all this building, all 19,000 square feet of it. Imagine if I filled the entire building with 10 billion silver dollars and I picked up a single one and painted it red and mixed it in the pile of 10 million. If I were to blindfold you and ask you to reach down and pick up the one red silver dollar on your first try, what do you think the chances are that you do it on your first try? One in ten billion. Odds aren't too good in your favor. You have a better chance of winning the lottery, which is darn near impossible. Now imagine this Peter Stoner, as he wrote this book, he calculated the odds of one man fulfilling multiple dozens of prophecies from the Old Testament. He came to this conclusion. It would be similar to the odds of filling the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep. And you drop either a blind man or a blindfolded man in the middle of Texas and you ask him to pick up the single red silver dollar in the state of Texas on the first try. You'd say that's impossible. It's impossible. Can't be done. But that gives you an idea of why we know that Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be because the odds were impossible that one man could fulfill all these many prophecies. One of those is recorded for us here in the early verses of Luke chapter 2. You see, back in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah was written about 700 years before Jesus was born. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gave this prophecy about the coming Messiah. He wrote in Micah 5, 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now you probably remember as we studied chapter 1 over the past few weeks, Remember, the angel Gabriel had told Mary, quote, He will be the Son of the Most High, and He will be given the throne of His father David, and He would reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. The angel Gabriel is so specific about what Mary's son would be, who he would be king over, and that his reign would be eternal. Without a doubt, the angel Gabriel there in Luke chapter 1 is referring to the same king that Micah is referring to 700 years earlier in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And so Gabriel says, your son that you're going to give birth to in about nine months He is the promised Messiah. There was just one big problem with Jesus being the one to fulfill this prophecy from Micah 5. 
Because in Micah 5, the prophecy is very specific that this Christ child, this coming eternal king of Israel, would be born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah. Bethlehem Ephrathah, same Bethlehem we talk about often at Christmas time, was 80 miles from Nazareth. It was about six miles from Jerusalem, but it was about 80 miles from Nazareth. And we know that when the angel came to Mary, she was in her hometown where she always was in Nazareth. What would be the chances that nine months later she would be, for some odd reason, 80 miles away in Bethlehem Ephrathah in a town where she didn't know anybody? That makes no sense. There's no way that her son could possibly fulfill this specific prophecy. And catch this, in her day, in Mary's day, there were actually two Bethlehems in Israel. There was a Bethlehem that was much closer to Nazareth. It was Bethlehem of Galilee. Guess what? That Bethlehem in Galilee was about six miles from Nazareth. So if she, on a fluke, was venturing outside of her hometown of Nazareth, maybe she'd travel as far as six miles away to go to Bethlehem in Galilee. But notice this prophecy in Micah 5.2 is extremely specific. It's not just going to be any old Bethlehem. It's Bethlehem Ephrathah, another way of saying Bethlehem in Judea, the one that's 80 miles from Nazareth. There is no way that Jesus could possibly fulfill this prophecy because Mary was not much of a traveling gal and she was 80 miles away. There'd be no chance he would fulfill this prophecy unless, Luke 2 verse 1, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to his own town to register. Huh. Well, that's kind of weird. We know historically that the Roman emperor demanded a census throughout the Roman Empire every 14 years. And we know historically that the 14-year census didn't come around until A.D. 6, which was about 10 years after Jesus was born. So there must be some mistake, right? No, it's very clear that on this year, imagine that, Quirinius and the emperor of Rome took a special census to place Mary 80 miles from her hometown in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, to be there at the perfect time for Jesus to fulfill this prophecy just as God had spoken. One example of dozens upon dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled to a T through Jesus Christ. How is this possible? It's possible because nothing is impossible with God. Verse 6, While Joseph was there in Bethlehem registering, Mary gave birth to Jesus. The little town of Bethlehem was bustling with people who had come into this town that normally just had a few hundred people, but on this occasion had uh, many more because of this census. Anyone that found their roots back in Bethlehem was coming back to this special little town where King David had been born and raised. And so all these people are converging upon this little town, so all the homes were filled. In those days, you didn't just go to an inn when you went to a strange town. If you were traveling through Israel and you yourself were Jewish, oftentimes perfect strangers would invite you into their home because hospitality was something you just did as a Jew to other Jews traveling into your hometown. 
So it's pretty clear that not only were the inns filled, the homes were filled. There were too many people that had gotten there before Mary and Joseph did. And so you know the story. They can't find any room in the inn. And so what are they going to do? What are they going to do? They finally discover that they can go to a little corral of some sort where there's a manger, a feeding trough for the animals. And at least there was probably some fresh hay there. They could spend the night there. We don't know if it was a cave. We don't know if it was an open corral with no roof. But it was some place for the animals with a manger, a feeding trough, where they could lay Jesus as his first crib. Isn't that interesting? The day that Jesus breathed his first here on earth was a day where there was no room for him. In his commentary, William Barclay shares these words, which I think are really insightful. William Barclay writes that there was no room in the inn was symbolic of what was to happen to Jesus. The only place where there was room for him was on a cross. He sought an entry to the overcrowded hearts of men. He could not find it. And still, his search and his rejection go on. Aren't those some insightful words? Still, his rejection and his search go on. He sought an entry to an overcrowded heart, and he couldn't find it. When Jesus Christ came on his very first night, there was no room for him. There was no room for him. And Jesus, even today, seeks entry into our overcrowded hearts. He seeks entry into my overcrowded heart. He seeks entry into your overcrowded heart. He seeks entry into our kids' and grandkids' overcrowded hearts. He seeks entry into our parents' hearts. He seeks entry into our classmates' hearts. He seeks entry into our friends' and neighbors' hearts. And most of the time, Jesus sees a sign hanging up at the doorway to the hearts that says, No Vacancy. Much the same as His parents found on that very first night when Jesus was born. We all remember what happened next, verses 8 through 20. We read all about how the shepherds were out in the fields, minding their own business, watching their flocks at night. They were watching most likely the little lambs that were being raised to be taken to the temple to be slaughtered. Because people on a daily basis, and we'll find this in a few verses, when Jesus was 40 days old, his parents would go to Jerusalem and do what all the Jewish parents tried to do, to go to that temple, and they were asked to sacrifice a one-year-old lamb as a guilt offering for their sin. And a guilt offering and, and an offering to cover over any impurities that the mom may be carrying with her after giving birth. And so this was required of the Jewish ladies. They would have to do these offerings of these little lambs. And and there were many other times where they sacrificed lambs for other reasons. So most likely Bethlehem, just being about six miles outside of Jerusalem, these guys were raising these little lambs to be slaughtered at the age of one there at the temple as part of the sacrificial system. Well, there they are minding their own business, raising these lambs, and the angel comes. And the angel says, what? There's much the same thing that angels normally say when they appear to a person and the person is scared half to death. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Hmm. That will be for all the people. Not just the rich people. Not just the folks that can be in the synagogue each Saturday. 
even for lowly shepherds like you guys, today is born a Savior for you. He is Christ the Lord. Well, what an amazing thing to think about. These shepherds who every single day would hold in their arms these little lambs that were so weak and so fragile and so dependent. These little lambs that would be the ones most likely to be taken to the temple and slaughtered in a futile attempt to cover the sins of the people of Israel. These shepherds would be the first ones God sends His angels to announce the birth of the Lamb of God. And they went from holding a little baby sheep in their arms to quite possibly holding the Lamb of God in their arms a little bit later that night. But we know the song of the, of the angels, don't we? As those shepherds were out in the fields, they said, Gloria in excelsis Deo. This is the third of those four songs of praise that we find in the first two chapters of Luke. Remember in chapter 1, we saw last week that there are two of these psalms of praise. The first was a psalm of praise, remember, that Mary lifted up after she visited Elizabeth. And Elizabeth confirmed the words of the angel. And she lifted up this praise. You remember what that was called? Mary's psalm of praise was called the the Magnificat, the Latin word for magnify or glorify the Lord. And then next, at the tail end of chapter 1, we found that psalm of praise of Zechariah when he came to his senses and realized that God can make the impossible possible. And his wife in her old age gave birth to John the Baptist, and then God gave him his speech back. And when he got his speech back, Zechariah began to praise God. And that psalm of praise, do you remember the name of that one? The Benedictus, the Latin word for benediction or praise. And so we have the Magnificat and the Benedictus in chapter 1. And here we have the third psalm of praise. And guess what it is in the Latin? Gloria in excelsis Deo. Kind of sounds like a Christmas song, doesn't it? Gloria, everyone, in excelsis Deo. Gloria, in excelsis Deo. You've been singing that for years, wondering, what am I singing? Simply Latin for glory to God in the highest. First phrase they say in their psalm of praise, Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest. Now, before we move on to the second part of our passage today in verse 21, before we move on, I want you to notice what it says in verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, and pondered them in her heart. I like how the New Living Translation translates verse 19. It says it this way, But Mary kept all these things in her heart, and she thought about them often. I like how that's worded. She treasured all these things in her heart and thought about them often. Even though Mary had been visited by one of God's most important angels, even though Elizabeth had prophesied about Jesus nine months earlier, even though Mary had just given birth without ever having had sexual relations, 
Mary was still blown away by the story the shepherds told her on that night Jesus was born. She was still blown away by the story of the announcement of that one angel and how after the announcement was made, how the sky was riddled with angels all around more than they could count. And the hillsides were beaming and surrounded by these angels all singing together, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. And Mary listened Listen to their every word as they shared their testimony of what had just happened in those Bethlehem fields. And she was blown away. She thought about these things often. And I think the same should be said of us as Christians. No matter how many times we've heard the Christmas story, no matter how many times we've read Luke chapter 2, no matter how many times we've heard a sermon about the manger and the shepherds and the angels out there in the fields, we should never stop being blown away by that first Christmas night. Amen? We should still treasure these things in our hearts and think about them often. I think before we move on to verse 21, you'll notice at the end of your handouts today, I don't have any... You know, clear application spelled out at the end. I'm just kind of giving them to you in the midst of this message. And so here's two that we can pull from the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2. Piggybacking on what we said about there being no room for Jesus, I would give you this lesson maybe to jot down, this application to jot down in the margin of those handouts. And this is it. Make sure that there is room in your life for Jesus. I've mentioned to you before that the most important thing in this life is not what you believe. Many Christians, this truth hasn't exactly sunk in. The most important thing is not what you believe. What do you mean? I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I I, I understand that. But many people say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God, but they don't take it the next step to ask themselves, do I really care about Jesus Christ? As the Son of God. The most important thing is not what you believe. The most important thing is what you care about. Because you hold thousands of different beliefs. And most of those beliefs you don't have enough time in the day to care about. I believe, no matter what the astronomers say, that Pluto is still a decent planet. But to be honest with you, I could care less about Pluto. I believe in many things, but I don't have enough time or energy in the day to care about most things. And so many say, yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe in church. Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, now do you care about those things? Are those things the very most important things in your life? Are they what you prioritize above all other things that you believe? And so when we think about them having no room, they believe that a child was born in Bethlehem. They believe that he was special on some level. But most people didn't really care. They didn't give Jesus the time of day. And so I ask you today, are you making room in your life for Jesus? The very best room, the best place. Is He who you care about more than anyone or anything else in the world? You care about Jesus more than anything. Is He your number one priority? And second lesson we can pull from these 20 verses, just like the lesson we learned from Mary, do you treasure Jesus Christ And what He has done in your heart. And do you think about these things often? Do you treasure what He's done in your heart? And do you think about Him often? You know what I've been going through this last month. This has not been one of the most enjoyable months of my life. 
In many ways, it's been hell. Dealing with my mom and dad's situation, and, and you don't know the half of what I'm dealing with. It's not just that my dad had a stroke. There's all sorts of extenuating circumstances with my parents and their marriage and the situation surrounding things that is a whole lot tougher than dealing with a family member with a health issue. And this has been heart-wrenching over this past month. It's been annoying. It's been difficult over the last month. And this is especially a time where I need to take my own lesson here. I need to take my own advice here. When we're in the valleys, when we're in the dumps, when things are tough, when things are hard, when things truly stink that we are going through, we have to discipline ourselves to remind ourselves what God has done. We have to discipline ourselves to remember the good things that God has done in our lives, how He has been faithful, how He has been true, how He has answered prayer, how He has been good. We have to remind ourselves of these things. And so I'm sure Mary had those seasons where she was in the dumps and she didn't understand. Her son is now 30 years old and he's doing ministry and she doesn't understand why he's saying what he's saying because all the Pharisees are getting mad at him. And she doesn't understand why he's doing what he's doing. He should do a miracle here and not do it over there. She didn't understand at times his priorities with his miracles. There were tough times for Mary, but she thought about these things often. Even when she was confused, even when she was tired, even when she was hurting, she could go back to these times where it was crystal clear that God was answering prayer, that God was moving, that God was powerful, that God was good. And we have to do the same. Let's move on to verse 21 and enter some less familiar territory in chapter 2. It says, on the eighth day, on the eighth day when it was time to circumcise Jesus, he was named Jesus the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of the purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be circumcised to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms, and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own heart too, your own soul. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying, Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. 
When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now these are less familiar verses in chapter 2. Normally, when we read the Christmas story at Christmas time as a church, we stop at verse 20, don't we? And when you're gathered around the Christmas tree and you read the Christmas story with your family, either on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, normally you stop at verse 20. But verse 21 to 40 are, I think, equally important for us. Now, although the first recipient of this gospel account, Theophilus, was most likely a Gentile, a non-Jew, Luke wanted Theophilus and all his other readers to know that Jesus was born into a law-abiding Jewish family. And Jesus himself was Jewish through and through. Luke takes time in these 20 verses to make that crystal clear. Five different times in verses 21 through 40, five different times Luke mentions the Old Testament law. And three of these times are mentioned crammed together in verses 22 through 24. Look at those three verses again, starting in verse 22. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed... Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. Now, these rituals described in verses 21 through 24 seem a little odd to our 21st century American ears. But it boils down to this. Mary and Joseph were following the Old Testament law to a T concerning what must be done for their firstborn son and what must be done for Mary after giving birth to that son. And so they wanted to make sure that they followed the Old Testament law to a T. Much of what they're referring to here in verses 22 through 24, it references Leviticus chapter 12, third book in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 12, and a few other passages, it's clear that when you give birth to a son as a Jewish parent, there are three things you need to make sure you do in the first 40 days of that child's life. The first of those, requirement number one, must take place on the eighth day of that baby boy's life. On the eighth day of a baby boy's life, according to the Old Testament law, you need it as parents to take that baby, ideally to the temple, and have him circumcised. If you couldn't get to the temple, you just had someone circumcise him there on the eighth day, wherever you happened to be. Now look, according to Luke 2.22, Mary and Joseph did that. They sacrificed him, or excuse me, uh, well, they did sacrifice part of him, but uh, we won't go there. Uh, They circumcised him on the eighth day, just like they were supposed to do. Now, over the more recent centuries leading up to Jesus' birth, it had become a custom and a tradition for the Jewish parents to also name their son on that eighth day when he was circumcised. John the Baptist's parents did that on the eighth day, and Jesus' parents do the same. They officially name him Jesus on that eighth day. Now, the second requirement of the Old Testament law for the parents and their baby boy, on the 40th day of that baby boy's life, his parents ideally are to take him to Jerusalem, to the temple, and there at the temple they would offer two sacrifices. According to Numbers 18.16, the Jews called this the redemption of the firstborn. The Jews understood that a child is a gift from God. And that child, when it was born into their family, was simply on loan from God. 
And so they would go through this ritual where they, in a sense, bought the child back from God. They paid five shekels to, in essence, as they gave the five shekels to the, the, the temple, they were, in essence, saying, God, I understand that this is your boy, not mine. I understand that he's on loan from you. We're going to give you five shekels so that we can continue to raise him as if he were our own. But he's always going to be understood as on loan from God. That's a beautiful thing. And so this wonderful ritual took place on the 40th day of the child's life. And so we find that they did that here in Luke chapter 2. They went to the temple on the 40th day and did what they were supposed to to redeem the child. And so the third requirement also took place at the temple on the 40th day. And this one specifically involved the mother of that baby boy. On the 40th day of a baby boy's life, his mom was supposed to offer two sacrifices at the temple to cleanse her of her menstrual bleeding and any of the bleeding that continued after giving birth. She would offer a one-year-old lamb as a burnt offering, the lambs we referred to earlier that most likely were there in the hills of Bethlehem, She was to offer a one-year-old lamb as a burnt offering and either a young pigeon or a young dove as a sin offering. Now, if she was too poor to be able to afford a lamb, she could offer two doves or two pigeons instead of one pigeon and one sheep. Now, notice what it says in verse 24, two young birds. What did Mary and Joseph offer? Not a lamb and a bird, but two young birds because it's very clear They couldn't afford the lamb. And so Jesus was not born into a wealthy family. When you've heard the story that Joseph was a poor carpenter, this is one of those points of evidence that verifies that he was, in fact, a poor carpenter. They would have sacrificed a lamb if they could, but evidently they couldn't afford it. And so according to the law, they went with a backup plan, sacrificing two young pigeons or two young doves. Now, why do we need to know all of this? about Jesus' circumcision and a five-shekel offering and slaughtering a couple birds? It's a good question. It's an understandable question. Well, we need to know it because God is 100% faithful to keep His Word, isn't He? He's 100% faithful to keep His Word, and the prophecies in His Word about Jesus are always fulfilled down to the smallest detail, right? Right? So we need to know these details because it confirms once again that Jesus Christ was the exact Messiah prophesied in Scripture dozens upon dozens upon dozens of times. And the Old Testament made it clear that the coming Messiah would be king of the Jews, right? How on earth can you be king of the Jews if you aren't 100% thoroughly Jewish? And how can you be 100% thoroughly Jewish unless your parents did everything required by the Old Testament law to make sure that you were Jewish from day one? Couldn't happen. Jesus was to come as the promised Messiah first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. So if he was going to be the Messiah, the Christ of the Jews, wouldn't he have to be thoroughly Jewish? Absolutely. And so, Luke, I'm so glad he includes these 20 verses for any skeptics out there that might try to pick apart the details of Jesus' birth or his life or his ministry or death or resurrection and say, see, he wasn't who the Old Testament said he was going to be. And this is yet verification once again that he's exactly who had been prophesied in the Old Testament Scripture. 
Well, we get to verse 25, and then we're introduced to two interesting characters in verses 25 to 38. He starts with Simeon. Simeon comes to Jesus and his parents while they're there at the temple on the 40th day of Jesus' life. Simeon is is described as righteous and devout. In other words, he did what was right in God's eyes. He obeyed the Old Testament law every single day. Luke tells us that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel is a term taken from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. It was a term synonymous with the coming Messiah. So when it says he was awaiting the consolation of Israel, it means he was anxiously awaiting the birth of the Messiah. He was anxiously awaiting the coming of the promised Christ. So the Holy Spirit had told Simeon that before he died, he would get to see the promised Messiah with his own eyes. And so you can imagine that he was anxiously looking on a daily basis for that prophecy, that promise to be fulfilled. He knew he wasn't getting any younger, but the Holy Spirit had promised that he'd get to see that promised Messiah with his own eyes. And so he was anxiously awaiting him. And one day the Holy Spirit speaks to Simeon. And the Holy Spirit says, Simeon, I need you to go to the temple today. Because today, Simeon, today is your day. Today is the day where my promise to you is going to be fulfilled. And so Simeon obeys the prompting of the Holy Spirit. He goes to the temple. And likely on this day, the 40th day of Jesus' life, there were likely dozens upon dozens of little baby boys who were also 40 days old, who were also being dedicated to the Lord on that day. And on that day, among all of these many parents, among all of these babies, the Holy Spirit speaks to Simeon and says, That's the baby boy I promised to you. And Simeon goes right up to Mary and Joseph, and he begins to prophesy. He holds, verse 28, the little baby Jesus in his arms, and he praises God. In verses 29 through 32, Simeon lifts up a psalm of praise to God. This is the fourth psalm of praise, the fourth and final one in the first two chapters. The first by Mary in chapter 1 was the Magnificat. The second by Zechariah was the Benedictus. The third we talked about a few minutes ago was the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, the psalm of praise by the angels in the Bethlehem Hills. And here's the fourth. This one has the trickiest sounding name. This is called the Nunc Dimittis. The Nunc Dimittis, that is Latin for now dismiss, because those are the first words that he says in his psalm. I have now seen the promised Christ child, God, now dismiss your servant. In peace, the Nuctimus. And as he holds the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in his arms, Simeon praises God. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Verse 33, it says, Mary and Joseph marveled at what was said about Jesus. Then after blessing Jesus' parents, Simeon turned to Mary specifically, and he prophesied to Mary. As he prophesied to Mary, He says this, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And here he ends with this phrase I mentioned to you last week at the end of the message. He says to Mary, And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Yes, she was rejoicing that she was given the honor and privilege of giving birth to the Messiah But 33 years later, she would be weeping as with her own eyes she would see her son being crucified on the cross. 
We're introduced finally to this woman named Anna. She had been a widow for some 60 years or so, maybe 55, 60 years. But at this point, she was 84 years old. And according to verse 37, she never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. I had mentioned, I think it was a couple weeks ago, that King Herod, when he built this this temple in Jerusalem, this thing was huge. It was a huge temple. And so it had all of these various storage rooms, and some believe there were actually some sleeping quarters there in the temple courts. And so Anna may have actually slept night and day when she was sleeping. She would sleep in the temple. So when it says she stayed there night and day and didn't leave, it probably means she was there night and day and never left. And there she was at the age of 84 as she would go through this habit on a regular basis of fasting and praying and praising God. God shows her that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And as that man is finishing up, as, as Simeon is finishing up his words of praise, Anna immediately comes in and she in verses 39 and 40 says this. She says in those verses, if I can get to the right ones here. Well, it's actually in verses 37 and 38. It says, then the widow comes, verse 38, coming up to them at that very moment. She gave thanks to God spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. And then this passage ends with verses 39 and 40. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. You find both Simeon and Anna unable to contain their enthusiasm. You find in this chapter shepherds that cannot contain their enthusiasm. They've got to tell people about Jesus. They've got to tell people about what they've just seen. They've got to have people know what they just experienced. And I can't help but to think of what's taking place in our own church in two weeks. We've got this beautiful opportunity. As you look around you, you'll see some empty chairs. We have this wonderful opportunity to say, Lord, I'm going to stop containing my enthusiasm about you. I'm going to stop doing what most American Christians do and keep their mouths shut about Jesus Christ. One of the reasons our country has been in such a mess over the last few decades is because far too many Christians have kept Jesus to themselves. Far too many Christians would say, I don't talk about politics or religion. And I know about the religion part, but what most Christians mean by that is, I don't talk about politics or Jesus to other people. And that's a crying shame. Our nation is the way it is in large part because Christians haven't been talking enough about Jesus. Christians haven't been talking enough about God's Word. Christians haven't been talking enough about how important it is for families to go to church together and learn God's Word and grow in God's Word and learn about Jesus Christ. And we have this opportunity to follow in the footsteps of those shepherds on that first Christmas night. We have the opportunity to follow in the footsteps of Simeon and Anna who met the baby Jesus when he was 40 days old. We have the opportunity in these next two weeks to follow in their footsteps and get excited about our Lord and tell people about our Lord and invite them to come out and hear about Jesus Christ. Your friends, your family, your neighbors, they will be blessed. Let's follow in the footsteps of these three who served Jesus Christ so well by telling everyone who would listen about the good news that they had received and seen with their own eyes and experienced with their own senses Jesus Christ born to save the world. Let's pray. God, You're awesome. We love You. We praise You. And we pray, O God, that You would help us as we go through these seasons 
when, Lord, we lose our enthusiasm for you. We lose our excitement for you. We get, extra- we get distracted, Lord, by all the many things that clutter our hearts. Lord, help us to make sure we carve out the very best part of our heart for you. And I pray, O oh Lord, that our enthusiasm for you, our excitement for you, and our contagious joy, O oh God, would spread to those that you've put in our paths over these next few weeks. Lord Jesus, we want to pack out the place because we want people to get to know the greatest thing in the universe, Jesus Christ, who was born to save the world. Thank you for teaching us through your word, O God. Help us to serve you faithfully, to love you wholeheartedly, and to obey your commands, O God, until you call us home. In Jesus' name, amen.